You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Project Zero warns that a use-after-free vulnerability in widely used Android devices is being exploited in the wild. Uzbekistan's National Security Service continues to get stick in the court of public opinion for sloppy OPSEC. Checkpoint reports on what appears to be an Egyptian domestic surveillance operation. Palo Alto reports on a newly discovered Chinese state threat actor. A new volley in the crypto wars. And Vlad gets out the rubber chicken. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 4th, 2019. Google's Project Zero has determined that at least 18 widely used Android devices are vulnerable to exploitation of a use-after-free condition and that this vulnerability is being exploited in the wild. It's a local privilege exploitation vulnerability that exposes susceptible devices to full takeover. Ars Technica points out that there are two ways in which the vulnerability could be triggered. A user could install a malicious app, or the attacker could combine the exploit with a second one that takes advantage of an issue in the code the Chrome browser uses to render content. Ars Technica also cites Google as pointing to either Herslia-based NSO Group or some of its customers as the actors behind the attacks. But NSO Group has said that the whole affair has nothing whatsoever to do with them, and their reply to Ars Technica is worth quoting in its entirety, quote, NSO did not sell and will never sell exploits or vulnerabilities. This exploit has nothing to do with NSO. Our work is focused on the development of products designed to help licensed intelligence and law enforcement agencies save lives, End quote. The October Android update is expected to address the issue. Watch for it in the next few days. Uzbekistan's National Security Service whose cyber espionage tools were blown in the course of testing them against Kaspersky security software, is being credited with developing its own malware, possibly because none of the lawful intercept companies out there are willing to sell to them. But that assessment may be premature. Kaspersky thinks that the Uzbek service, now named after its totem animal Sandcat, was in fact buying tools from a vendor, which they name as Tel Aviv-based Kandiru, which specializes in developing and selling lawful intercept tools for Windows systems. Their wares, Forbes reports, have been found in use before by both Saudi and Emirati intelligence services. It may be time for Kandiru, if they were indeed selling to Sandcat, to consider firing the customer. Sloppy customers are bad customers, Kaspersky researcher Brian Bartholomew told Forbes. That's as true of the cyber sector as it is of the hospitality industry, selling exploits to Uzbekistan, where the customer proceeded to set up a test machine exposed to the Internet with an IP address of Military Unit 02616, is a little like the Holiday Inn renting rooms to the Who. 
As happened, as a matter of fact, in Flint, Michigan, back in 1967, the Flint Chamber of Commerce is still talking about it, or so we've heard. Checkpoint has linked a domestic surveillance effort to Egyptian intelligence services. The campaign used spyware embedded in security apps, that is, apps that advertised themselves as offering security enhancements, but which in fact contained spyware. The apps were made available in Google's Play Store and included Secure Mail, a Gmail extension that promised security, but which in fact socially engineered people into providing credentials, iLoud 200%, a smart storage solution that freed up space on your phone, and also sent location info to external servers, and IndexY, a caller ID service that collected and reported users' call logs. Checkpoint calls it the Eye on the Nile and says that the targets were carefully selected, hand-picked political and social activists, high-profile journalists, and members of non-profit organizations in Egypt. They don't exactly attribute the activity to the Egyptian government, but they do note that whoever's behind the Eye on the Nile speaks Arabic, is familiar with the Egyptian ecosystem, and is most interested in domestic Egyptian targets. But the Register and others are happy to connect the dots and call the operation for Cairo. Palo Alto Networks has published an adversary playbook for PK Plug, a recently identified Chinese state espionage actor that's concerned itself with domestic surveillance of Uyghurs and international espionage directed against countries opposed to Belt and Road. The group is behind the Henbox Android malware, distributed through third-party app stores. Cabinet members in the U.S., the U.K., and Australia have jointly asked Facebook to hold off on plans to implement end-to-end encryption. BuzzFeed yesterday obtained a copy of a letter U.S. Attorney General Barr, U.K. Home Security Secretary Patel, Australian Home Affairs Minister Dutton, and Acting U.S. Homeland Security Secretary McAleenan were to publish today. The open letter, which ZDNet says will be issued in conjunction with announcement of a new data-sharing agreement among the three countries, specifically asks that the social network not make it impossible for authorities to legally access content related to child sexual exploitation and abuse, terrorism, and foreign interference in democratic institutions. The letter is framed as a response to Facebook's Privacy First initiative. The officials write, quote, We support strong encryption, which is used by billions of people every day for services such as banking, commerce, and communications. We also respect promises made by technology companies to protect users' data. But they go on to remind Facebook that they also have a responsibility to protect people from various forms of harm that can be detected or stopped if the authorities can read the traffic when they need to do so. They are looking, they write, for balance with privacy and security on one side and public safety on the other. Specifically, they ask Facebook to do these things. First, embed public safety into their system designs. Second, enable lawful access to content. Third, consult with governments on the matter. And fourth, not implement the changes proposed under Privacy First until Facebook has ensured it can maintain the safety of its users. Facebook is clearly in a tough position under pressure from both sides of the privacy-security balance. And finally, it was evidently open mic night at Russian Energy Week. President Vladimir Putin did a little improv about American concerns over election interference. When asked about Russian meddling in U.S. elections, Vladimir Vladimirovich said in an appropriate stage whisper, I'll tell you a secret. Yes, we'll definitely do it. 
Just don't tell anyone. Oh, the guy kills it, doesn't he? Be sure to catch his act if you happen by the Chuckle Hut in the Arbat. Come to think of it, we think it's just around the corner from the Burger King. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, welcome back. Um, We wanted to touch on threat hunting today. Uh, Why don't we start off, what is threat hunting and, and what is it not? So threat hunting is is looking for adversaries that are already present uh, within your network or or your endpoints. Enterprises today are spending money on things like antivirus and firewalls and intrusion detection and prevention systems uh, for their network. But what do you do if any of that fails? It really only takes a couple systems for an adversary to move around uh, or to subvert, and then they're in. Uh, and persistent within your environment. And so what threat hunting is, is the constant and continuous uh, searching for uh, for basically two things, Dave. Hmm. Number one, it's looking for the anomalous. So it's looking for things that don't smell quite right, but it could be a, a new patch that has changed that registry key or a new program has shown up because someone installed it. Or looking at things like uh, the suspicious, things like perhaps this registry key was added with this new potentially unwanted program 
or the suspicious being uh, someone logging in directly into a Linux system using a root login instead of logging in as a user and then becoming super users. So uh, threat hunting is really looking for the things that are misplaced or shouldn't be there. So is this uh, an expensive thing to spin up within an organization? When, when do you know when it's time to, to activate this process? Well, I think all enterprises of sufficient size, meaning really in the SMB market, I think threat hunting is going to be too spendy to do it yourself. I think that most managed service providers or managed detection and response providers should be supplying that for the SMB market. But for the larger enterprises that are managing their own infrastructure, it should absolutely be a a part of their cyber defense program. The barrier to entry to threat hunting is there's simply not enough people in the industry today in order to not only run the threat hunt program, but develop the threat hunt program. Many of my clients are struggling with saying, okay, I know we need to do threat hunting and I kind of have some people to do it, but what do I do? Hmm. And and really, there have been some vendors out there. They are automating their EDR systems in order to codify things like the MITRE attack matrix and putting that in their agent or in their software so that human beings don't have to remember every little nitpicky thing that the attack matrix for MITRE presupposes. And so with that automation, it still gives our uh, our threat hunters a leg up uh, in order to find the anomalous and the suspicious. So what's your advice? So what's the best way for someone to get started? The best advice here is to bring in a, a, a trusted third party, hopefully one that has a, uh, a threat hunt methodology in order to give to the threat hunters. In my experience, or at least in the old days, uh, the old days being several years ago, uh, <laughs> threat hunting was just merely hiring a bunch of smart infosec people and throwing me against a problem saying, go find evil, go find the anomalous and the suspicious. And that that's, hasn't been working at scale. So I think... Uh, number one is to settle on a uh, a threat hunting methodology. Ours, the one that we've developed amongst my team, is what we call Intel-driven hypothesis-based threat hunting methodology. Hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of other types of methodologies out there that are just as good. Uh, the second step, Dave, would be uh, focusing on a technology set that will support codifying things like the MITRE attack matrix into an EDR product. So not only do you have to have the people, the methodology, but you also have to have the tools and the visibility amongst uh, the endpoints and the networks in order to surface that telemetry and then to to analyze it. So some of our customers utilize uh, EDR products that send all their data back to a centralized source. Perhaps it's Splunk, perhaps it's their SIM, Perhaps it's the EDR console, and then they hunt within that environment uh, in order to find uh, those adversaries latent within the network and the endpoints. All right. That's good information as always. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Paige Schaefer. She's CEO of Generali Global Assistance's Identity and Digital Protection Services Global Unit, Our topic today is the recently published University of Texas at Austin Identity Threat and Assessment Prediction, or ITAP, report. We've been involved with the University of Texas for the past several years, and I I really don't think there's anyone like them that does, really from a research standpoint, looks at those relays for 
identity compromise and abuse in as many different ways as they can. So um, they just capture thousands of details and they're really looking at um, the aggregation of the information to kind of trend risks and, and head them off at the pass, if you will. Well, let's go through some of the key findings together. What were some of the things that caught your eye? One of the first uh, things that kind of leapt out, which really shouldn't be a surprise, but that really 45% of identity compromise is from an inside threat. Now, that could be mean a lot of things where companies are concerned, but you know, it makes sense that employees have intimate knowledge of organization networks, their infrastructure, their practices. And so it's it's almost like it's too easy. And I, I you know, unfortunately, there there can be employee ignorance, which gives way to, to cyber threats. So really just unwittingly giving access with unauthenticated users, folks clicking on attachments or opening up links that are malicious. Um, some are phishing emails. Some of it is is not <laughs> malicious, intending to be by the employee. Right. It's just kind of dumb luck and and not being savvy to it. And much of that has to do with the type of culture that a uh, um, an organization establishes where cyber protection is concerned. And so, if you've got a culture that puts cybersecurity at the forefront, then that company is going to be harder to penetrate uh, and less vulnerable to all of the threats, including the ones inside. But if you don't have the mentality to kind of drive that culture, uh, that cultural shift to kind of uh, empowering a cyber secure organization, it's going to be tougher to do. And it does strike me that that it has been a bit of a shift, that it, in years past, you know, the, the IT department, the security folks, you know, it, it was up to them to handle these sorts of things and it was their responsibility. And it, it seems to me like this has shifted to being a company-wide uh, responsibility these days. You know, it really is. It, it, it could be anything from, well, first of all, everything that we trade in is information. And so whether it's employees coming on board with um, human resource information on employees, whether it is client information that's out there uh, selling to particular audiences. It's not only about kind of the technical cyber threat, it is about information security. So now, you know, you've started to see over the past couple of years, you have clear delineation between um, kind of IT infrastructure and info security. And so you see more and more roles uh, in larger companies that have huge divisions that are really looking after the information that they are responsible for. Uh, the other thing I thought that was interesting is, and also not surprising, is that almost 75% of the the cases that have happened where identity theft is concerned, they are cyber vulnerabilities. So it is, hmm. uh, folks are getting information online through computers, through software. Um, and I think that there is a little bit of a delusion around um, folks that say, oh, well, I've got antivirus software. Well, antivirus software doesn't necessarily protect you from an identity theft. There were a few things in the report that that were really surprising to me. Um, one of them was that the victims were most often college graduates. That's counterintuitive to me. 
it's true, most are college graduates. And I would say that we have a large percentage of seniors that are victims as well. Identity theft thieves are going to make it easier for themselves. And I would say college graduates as well as seniors, if you look at the age range now, those college graduates today are very dialed into social media and all sorts of things on social media, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Snapchat, all of these things, they're engaging and sharing lots of information. Mm. Um, and so putting that information out there makes it easier for identity thieves to kind of piece together a profile that whether you have your birth date or graduation or where you're from, your address that you're sharing uh, on a particular social media site, uh, and then they go after credit card information or tie that with birth date, it, it just makes it easier. Um, I, I think there's some different tactics that um, folks take with seniors in that they're maybe not as technically savvy, but they are a little, you know, if I think about my mother, who's very active on on email and the web, uh, quick to say, hey, this looks serious. Should I share this information? Now she's got a daughter that works in this business. So <laughs> she's gotten better about saying, hey, I, I probably shouldn't shouldn't do this. And, mm -hmm. and um, but there are a lot of folks that, quite frankly, thieves are savvy about and kind of scare them. Uh, into, well, if you don't do this, you're, you know, the latest was the IRS scam where we've got a, a warrant out for your arrest kind of thing. Right. I think the other thing that, that was really um, kind of glaringly interesting in the study is when you think about all of the types of losses experienced by victims, uh, financial loss, property loss, reputational damage, by far it is emotional distress that's most frequently reported by victims. So, over 80% ranging from medium to high levels of, of really truly emotional trauma. So where almost 50% felt like they had a medium level of, of uh, emotional distress, another 32% experienced really high level of emotional stress. And this is in sync with, we also uh, generally, uh, we conducted a, a survey, a global uh, cyber barometer survey, survey early this year in February, and um, over 82% of global respondents consider a cyber attack extremely stressful, and and almost 50% of respondents wouldn't know how to fix their situation if they were compromised. So again, really another reason why full service resolution services are important, and and really knowing what next steps to take so you can alleviate some of that stress. Again, I, I would kind of hammer home how important it is that organizations are really working towards a, a, a culture that em, embodies cyber safety. And, and those that don't will just increasingly uh, fall further behind as, as those criminals get more and more sophisticated. So I would say for these market sectors, we we see an opportunity to leverage today's age of data breaches and, and the need for information security by really providing their members, customers, employees with identity protection services. They can really differentiate themselves while also creating a culture of, of information security from within. And, and uh, we see that to be a win-win. That's Paige Schaefer. She's CEO of Generali Global Assistance's Identity and Digital Protection Services Global Unit. 
and we were discussing the University of Texas ITAP report. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.